We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving that little side. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out. And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of mm. that goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with me, Cronin. Mick Cronin. Mac Wilson. How you doing? I'm very good, mate. And yourself? Mate, fantastic. Uh, it's good to see you're not sick anymore, but still, we uh, decided to do this online regardless. Yeah, we are taking uh, you know all precautions at the moment. Uh, but yeah, now look, I'm feeling good, Mac, and uh, feeling, uh, feeling excited for today's interview. That's right. That's right. Very excited. And today's interview is, uh, is with a person that has been previously on the podcast. That's correct, yeah. So um, if you go back to, I think, uh, when we were doing a recordings in Ravenhall Correctional Centre, um, we would have um, recorded one on the LGBTQI um, community and we spoke to who was then known as Noah. Um, but we are, um, and, and if, we, if we look at this, this is like in that episode, Noah then um, had, uh, we spoke about coming out um, in community coming out then in prison and now he's having a coming out of a new name because his real name is not Noah um, and we're for the first time we can actually uh, let everyone know what that is so it's Dwayne and uh, and Dwayne is a uh, you know um was an amazing guest back then and we thought you know what he's been in the community doing some amazing stuff not just in the community but overseas and everywhere else which we'll get into but um we thought it'd be such a great um, opportunity to talk to Dwayne and just to find out a little bit about how his life's been post um custody and all the amazing work that he's doing as well um at the moment so um so Dwayne um welcome to time to rebuild yet again <laughs> thanks for having me it's really great to be back why did you say, why did you choose the name Noah? Um, I don't actually remember. And I, I, I think, I think it was chosen for me. Oh. Mark, I'll, correct me I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand up for that one there. That was, <laughs> it, was it was just after I had my uh, second child and I had the name book. Uh, it has a hundred thousand na- baby names. And when people, when, we, when, we're, when we're trying to think of a name that may, sometimes takes like 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. So I decided to bring the name book in, uh, <laughs> and I just opened it up, and that was one of the names that uh, that, that came out. Um, oh yeah, was, was Noah at least one of your choices for your child? It was like the, the, the on, on the crap list, and you're like, you know what? It's going to go for Dwayne. You, you <laughs> were you had a child that he never he always wanted. He never wanted. Yeah, but but never but now you, you now he wants it, so it's okay. So we chose it. you chose Noah, but it could have been worse. You could have. <laughs> I've seen that name book, and we could have been rolling with a totally bad name. So I think, I think we went okay with Noah. 
all our listeners that are named Noah are now switching off yeah. all of, all of, everything they're copying. We just want to put it out there that we actually love the name Noah we and do. that's why it was picked because it was a strong, powerful name and we felt that that was what we should use. So yeah. moving on, Dwayne. <laughs> uh, how are you? I'm really good. I um, I feel like I'm still recovering from all my travels, um, but otherwise really good. And I've come back to a space which I feel like I am. Um, I, I literally have, have three hours sleep every night for the last two weeks, which has been good. <laughs> you can say that yeah. I'm at least doing things, but also bad that I think, um, you know, that work-life balance is not being achieved <laughs> at all. Yeah. What would be really good is let's take it back, yeah? So we recorded um, that your original episode while you're in uh, custody. And um, I think at that stage, I correct me if I'm wrong, but in that interview we were talking about, you know, when do you think you could be released? And I think it was, you know, you're possibly saying six months to whatever. Um, can you tell us when were you released? And, uh, and then just talk us through a little bit about, like, what that whole process was, um, you know, leading up to that and, and then, you know, Potentially, we can go into the first day, first few few days, weeks in the in the community. Of course, um, when I think about when that recording happened, I actually can't remember because I feel like it was like a a decade ago. Um, but I was released um, just over twelve months now in September two thousand and twenty one, and that was unexpected release to be honest because I went into court and the judge had decided to put me back on bail and so I actually was released not as a sentenced person but as a person that was on bail for six months which is a very unusual sort of legal provision in the law but um yeah it was odd because I went into court that day thinking that I was you know gonna be here for three or four months it's gonna take a bit more time to resolve my matter and the judge went no you're going home I was like oh really yeah, it was so odd. Yeah, it was honest. I, I there was a part of me, to be perfectly honest, that didn't want to go home because, like, I wasn't mentally, yeah, emotionally prepared to leave. Like, I hadn't packed anything. I was, I was, I think before going to court that day, and it was video link because it was sort of during the height of COVID. I was like chopping up vegetables for dinner, so I was like preparing to go back home and cook dinner and and, and watch a movie or something because I think it was a Friday. But no, I I got sent home and I was like. I, I was, I think I even told my, my solicitor, I was like, not, not today. Can I go home tomorrow? Like I, I need time to kind of prepare myself mentally, but unfortunately I had to go home that day. <laughs> that's wow. incredible. That's, yeah. that's yeah. like, I'm just trying to like picture the feeling that you were going through uh, when you, when you get like a sentence like that, you know, well, that, like a verdict that you are going home that day. And, and I think, you know, it was, I think when people enter the prison system, they don't have that that sort of mental preparation to go into the prison system. But the difference is when people exit the prison system, especially if you're a sentenced person, you usually have that time to kind of reflect and prepare yourself mentally to enter the real world. And I felt like I didn't have that experience. But upon leaving prison, um, I also felt this really strong sense of guilt that I still feel to this day, it was like this, it's really hard to explain. It might sound kind of crazy, right? But it was this guilt that, you know, why do I get to go home and leave the friends, uh, really the family I've created in prison, but they don't get to go home. And it was, it was quite palpable and striking when I sort of started saying goodbyes. And oddly enough, I had to hold back tears because I was kind of, it was a really emotional sort of, I felt like I was letting go of family members. It was letting go of, 
of a person that I'd lived with or people that I lived with. And I found that incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the thing that struck me in that as well, like that, it's really a unique situation, a very interesting situation that you were just faced with as well. And then I just have this picture of like three or four people just sitting around a table going, who's going to cook dinner? <laughs> that, that is real, but, but I also feel like, like I think when I came into prison, I didn't expect it to be the experience that it was. I didn't, I didn't expect to be involved in all the advocacy work I continue to do now. And I felt like it was like, when you're, you know, when you're in the middle of a project, like you're in the middle of a research cycle yeah. and then suddenly you get taken out of that research project. I, I felt yeah. exactly, not that these people that I was with or my friends that I was with were research subjects, but I felt like my experience in itself was in some respects, my own autoethnographic study of what it's like to be a gay person in prison. And I, I felt like I was still in the middle of that, that, that reflexive period and, and, and I didn't get to complete that. But yeah. in addition to that, that, that really, yeah, I felt really guilty. And you know what? I've, I've since now gone back and read academic literature and reflections on this whole idea of survivor's guilt. Um, and people, especially people who have, who have been in prison for a long time, experience it in a much more pervasive way. Um, but it's it kind of helped my understanding of why I was feeling that way and why I wasn't prepared to leave the prison community. Um and, and I'm sure for listeners out there, it would be a really kind of weird idea that I didn't want to leave prison. But I think it's much more personal and complex than than leaving prison. Yeah, and maybe it's a, yeah, it's a, a fascinating insight. It's maybe it's a bit like um, it's just timing, isn't it? It's like if you build up to any event, you you know the timings of that event, and you know what the, the process you walk through in that. And it's just getting to them timings and getting to that end, that end part, which you can see, you know, and then, yeah. I, I, it just, I'm just thinking about it now and everything like that. And it's, a, it's great that, like, you know, you were able to get released and everything. You had family support when you got released? Yeah, so I, I had sort of the family support and I had the, the support throughout sort of my reintegration and reentry period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was fantastic. So, and what I'm, what I'm getting at is, and the verdict might have been different if you didn't, but it would actually be quite detrimental to be released straight away like that without knowing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially if you think about sort of the processes that happen as a result of a person being released or a judge releasing a, a, an individual to the community, by the time you exit prison, the prison processes your paperwork and you go through sort of the trials and tribulations of getting your, your, your things ready, packed away, ready to go. If you didn't have those support systems and networks, and if you didn't have the family and friends that could pick you up and house you for the next few nights, that is a, a really detrimental um, thing for that individual. But also, we, I think it's also important to highlight that there is significant research in this field that tells us, and, and hopefully policymakers are informed by this, that the first 24 hours upon release is the most significant predictive factor as to whether or not an individual is likely to offend or an individual is likely to desist. And I think that's really, really important to highlight, that oftentimes the services in the community are, you know, operate from nine to five. And after five o'clock in the afternoon, there are no services left for sort of those triage type of circumstances. And the problem there 
is that what happens to the individuals that do get released after five, and there is a significant proportion of people that do get released after five by the time they get processed by the prison. And oftentimes those people go back to, to meeting up with their, you know, anti-social networks or go back to doing what they know just to be able to survive that night. And sometimes that going back involves illicit behavior or, or, or reoffending. And I think that's, that's something that the community often doesn't think about. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like for you then? Um, cause obviously, yeah, you've talked about this, you, you, you've got this surprise kind of information, like, you know, um, notice that, Hey, you know what, you're going back out on bail. Um, and you know, you go back, you pack your stuff and basically you're out of the prison and, and suddenly you're in the community, um, family and so forth. What was your first 24 hours like in that space? Well, my first 24 hours was a bit strange in the sense that, um, my parents live in country Victoria. And so my stepfather had to travel all the way from Shepparton, pick me up, I think it's like two hours, something to get to where Ravenhall is and drive all the way back. So it was like a very long journey. And and re- remembering that I, have, I hadn't been in a car for some nearly two years. And so being in a car for two hours straight after release was the weirdest thing, I think, biologically, physiologically, body-wise, but also mentally. But for me, the first thing I, I remember vividly, apart from you know, greeting my parents, giving them a hug, and, and that was sort of a really great re- reunion. But the first thing I did was I emailed my mentor, and who still is my mentor today, um, Dr. Marita Martinovic from RMIT University. And I said, I've been released. I'm ready to continue going on the projects outside in the community. And she had gotten back to me. I think it was like five minutes later, we spoke and we had all these grand plans um, after release. So I, 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 I didn't really get to kind of leave the criminal justice space and have a breather. I went from being an advocate inside prison to the, the, the next, the first five minutes of my time outside prison doing the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that would have... Did that give you um, some real, I suppose, comfort is one word, but also give you some kind of real direction and it, it eliminated that kind of, you know, phase where you're kind of wondering what's going to happen. It kind of it reduced a little bit of anxiety and it kind of went, it got your mind thinking, okay, I just pick it up here and I continue on. Was that really a reassuring thing at that point? I think I was privileged enough to be able to kind of, in some respects, set myself up whilst I was incarcerated, you know, to study um, tertiary education or re-engage in tertiary education, do all the projects I did through Marietta's programs. And so it kind of made sense and it was kind of seamless for me to to continue the work that I was still doing in prison outside of the community. But I think you're right. It certainly gave me a sense of direction, a sense of continuity. You know, it wasn't like my experience in prison wasn't siloed from what my experience would have been outside of prison. There was a sort of, in some ways, seamless transition into knowing what I was going to do and having a next step forward. And I think that really helped in kind of my journey to where I am today. Yeah. And I think that's really important because, you know, where I'm getting at with this is you were very proactive in the prison. You did stuff, you were making stuff happen for you. That's not always the case with other people or they're trying to, but they don't have... I suppose, the, the same experience that you've had or they don't maybe have the, the motivation or the opportunities that you kind of went, but they're, they're still trying to seek them. And when they are released into the community, there's that, that stage where they just don't have something to grab onto or they're waiting for something to grab onto or, and, and it doesn't happen in the timeframes that they, they need. And, uh, and that's where, you know, it gets, they become quite vulnerable as well. And I think it emphasizes for me 
the importance and the work that you do in yourself inside to prepare yourself for when you're on the outside. And you're probably a, you know, a, a probably shining example of, of doing above and beyond in that space because you literally, I, I would imagine then when you're released, right, after that phone call, how long was it before you were straight into the work? Was it a day or two? As soon as it hit the weekday, you were off and running? I think it was, um, I was released on a Friday, right, from, from memory. And I, and I had the weekend to kind of go have dinners, catch up with friends. And because my friends don't live in Shepparton, obviously, obviously, but they don't live in Shepparton, mm. um, they all kind of flocked to, to Shepparton where my parents lived as soon as I got released. So Saturday and Sunday was a sort of massive social event for me. I think it was something like 20 people came to the house during that weekend or something, you know, and I felt like I was having a massive party. Yeah. But it was still it was still odd for me, right? Because I'm not used to kind of seeing so many people in, in that short period of time. But it, but straight after the Monday, we, I got straight to work, and I think Marietta gave me some projects to do and some readings to do. Um, but it was also great because at that time, I think it was my exam period for university, so I got to just continue that on. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to make a, a point about what you said before, was that there is often this assumption that people have. Um, the same amount of agency in prison. I, I really want to kind of emphasize that what I was able to do in prison occurred because it was a very unique circumstance. I had the support of not just, you know, my, my family outside in the community, but I also had, I, I was also able to garner support from the management team at Raven Hall who supported the initiatives I wanted to do, who understood where I was coming from and who in some respects gave me that tiny bit more trust than they would have anyone else in the prison space. And I think that tiny bit of trust was really instrumental to allowing me to be able to thrive and grow in an environment like prison. And so that's a, my experience was a very unique experience and it, it's not my expectation that everybody has that type of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, so if you think about that, so, so this is where we get into let's just, you know, we jump straight into, you know, um, actually before we do, you were released on bail. Yes, I was released on bail. So conditions and, um, and what was, what was coming for, what, what were you waiting um, for sure. and dates and oh, what, what's the process there? Cause I think people got to be very good for, to break down for, um, for our listeners. Sure. And I, I so there is this uh, provision in, in, in Victorian sort of criminal law, um, it's called deferred sentencing. And because I was able to show the judge that I had been able to do all these great initiatives, I was able to study, work on projects that were peer-led in sort of the rehabilitation therapeutic space at Raven Hall, you know, be, be a peer worker, and, and I guess show that I was not only invested in my own rehabilitation or my own sort of transformation, but also in others. She wanted to see that I could translate those efforts in the community. And so she put me on a deferred sentencing for six months. And my the, the, the only condition was that I lived at my parents' house. That was the only condition. But it was an up to me to show her that I was able to translate everything I've done in the prison into the community. And in that period of six months, I, I've never worked harder in my life to, to show her what I could do. And I think I had two academic journals published in that period of time. I attended conferences remotely. I, I, I taught the first three weeks. I taught a subject as a guest lecturer at a university. I had never worked so hard in my life to show her that I could do it. And by the time I was sentenced, which was March, um, she had not given me any other sort of conditions. I was a straight release, if you like, if you 
were determined in that sense and I was able to do whatever I liked. Um, that, but that was certainly sort of a stressful period because after I was sentenced on March, six months after I was released, there were all these news headlines that were published about me um, that I found really hard to grapple with because it was kind of like, in some respects, deferred well and truly after I had left prison. I had to kind of relive all those things that people would probably feel when they get released or when they're still incarcerated. But I happened to be in the community when all of these negative media attention uh, occurred. And I mentally found that very difficult to grapple with. But, you know, I did and I'm here now. <laughs> yeah. cool. So how did you manage that? Um, focusing on work. Yeah. I think also having the support of RMIT University at the time, but also being able to transition into a new role um, with an organisation called VACRO, which works in the criminal justice space, and focus my attention in that work, I was really able to kind of move on. But in addition to that, I also got this amazing opportunity to be a guest um, a guest on an, a program called Insight and SBS. And that led to literally like a million things after, you know, which allowed me to attend conferences all over the world. And so I think there was a, a week or two of me sitting at home kind of trying to grapple with it. But as soon as all these projects came my way, I didn't really feel like I had the time to even process what the hell happened, you know, two, three, four, five, six months ago. Yeah. And um, so why don't we just, I suppose that's a great, like, kind of lead into then getting into, like, some of the work that you're doing and, and some of the travels you're doing. Because, you know, I know me and Mark will be sitting there, we'll be talking to you or whatever, and you say, oh, yeah, I'll have a chat to you. I'm just off over to uh, Oslo or um, I'm just off over here to do these talks. And it's amazing. Like, it's brilliant that you've been able to do this. And it's brilliant. And it's true your, you know, your work that you've done, you know what I mean, with RMIT, with support, but also what you've done as well. You haven't sat there and ever felt sorry for yourself. You sat, you know, from, from what we know of you, you've always been driven to kind of make change and, and to really get these topics out and discuss stuff around incarcerations and how it can be better for people going forward um, from all, all walks of life. So um, talk us through then a little bit about then where it started to move after Insight and um, where you started to, to, to kind of move into and some of, the, some of the, the great things that you've been able to do. Sure. So after Insight, I was contacted by a radio program in Sydney called 2SER, who runs this um, prison radio program called Jailbreak. And she had wanted to interview me about sort of my time in prison and where I'm at now. So sort of exactly this, a very similar conversation to what we're having today. And at the end of that interview, she said, oh, you know, I'm actually going to Oslo. I think it was like in, in two weeks time. And I'm presenting at the first international prison radio conference. And I was like, oh yeah, sounds great. Because, you know, I'm really impressed with how you've responded to my, to my answers. I really enjoyed talking with you. And there's a strong focus on bringing people with lived experience to this conference. And I was like, oh, that, that, that's nice. And then she said, you know, I'd, I'd love to take you. And I was like, sorry. At, at that point, I didn't have a passport. <laughs> mine, mine expired. And I, I wasn't prepared to go overseas. I was in the middle of projects at work at, with, with work at RMIT. And literally the next day, she sent me a ticket. I had a ticket to go to Oslo. And I was like, okay, great. Now I'm going to get a passport. And it was funny enough, because at that time, that was when everybody wanted to get a passport because the, you know, the country just started opening up. And so I had to stand in line at 5 a.m., outside the passport office 
to get my passport, which which that was an adventure in itself. Yeah. But <laughs> so that was that was weird. I, I found that kind of odd. But putting that aside, I then got to go to Oslo and attend the first international prison radio conference, where I got to talk about what kind of prison radio initiatives Australia has been up to. Naturally, I spoke to you guys and I mentioned the work that you've been doing in the in this time to rebuild space. And what I found at this conference was there was a real community of people providing a countercurrent, an alternative media representation of what people touched by the justice system look like. And I found that I, I honestly, especially having experienced being a subject of news headlines, I found it incredibly therapeutic to be able to tell my own story on my own terms and paint my own narrative and, and create my own narrative from my perspective. And I found that this this kind of work, the work that you do and the work that other people around the world do, um, I found that really exciting. So much so that as a result of that, I became really, really close friends with um, the executive director, Diane Can of Humans of San Quentin, which is based in San Francisco, um, but also the um, general manager of Inside Wire, which is a an initiative from the University of Denver's Art Initiatives. And they have, I think, four or five different prison radio um, stations mapped out across the state of Colorado in America. And I got to go and visit them. Um, how long ago was that? A month ago. And I got to travel to the US, and I'll speak about that a bit, a bit later. But I got to travel to the US and I got to really experience how different incarceration looks like in the United States. And you hear sentences of 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And you think, how is this possible? It's so diff- a different context completely to what happens in Australia. Um, but in between me going to the US and attending the prison radio conference, I got to meet uh, someone who has been on this program before, Joe Kwan from Confit. Yep. And we uh, attended um, the Howard League for Penal Reform Conference in Oxford. Um, and I got to go back to Oslo after that conference and visit some prisons and also present at a social science conference in, in Brussels. So bearing all this in mind, this happened in a period of some like four or five months. And I genuinely felt like I wasn't even home for four or five months. And that was that was difficult. And I've never traveled so much in my life. But it's been an absolute pleasure being able to hear stories of, of incarceration, of how they've been touched by the justice system from different perspectives around the world. And, and my hope is I'm, I'm able to learn from those perspectives and bring some of those understandings and learnings into the Australian context. Yeah, well, and, and I think it's amazing hearing that um, as well. But yeah, it is. It's such important. Um, it's such an important topic it's, that you, you're speaking about as well. And, and you know, w- even reflecting when you were talking there about like why we started this podcast and what we wanted to kind of, you know, achieve from that was really providing, you know, people with a voice to actually share their experiences, but also educate as well um and and learn and we'd all do that together because you know we we work in the system but we're not we always don't pretend to be experts but we're just people that have had you know the ability to hopefully help some people change their lives but when you think about that in a global sense what can be let what can be shared but also what can be taken back and i'm sure they would have taken something from you as you took from them but i'm really interested right if you look at um some of the stuff like i know you know you say san quentin and and, and so forth if you look at the american justice system 
what struck you the most as, you know, what was the really biggest eye-opening thing that you kind of felt um, separated them, obviously? And we know, you know we know there's lots of them, but what was the real thing that kind of resonated with you while you were there, both good or bad, um, of something that was really brilliantly being done or something that you felt was way behind um, and was really shocking? I think for me, one of the things that really resonated with me, especially in Norway, and in visiting some of the other Scandinavian countries and understanding you know, how, how prison works there and how prison is positioned in, in broader society, was that the, the criminal justice issues and criminal justice problems are seen as a collective desire. There, there is, sorry, there is a collective desire to be part of these conversations. And there is a collective desire to help people that have been touched by the justice system. And I and through these, through the way they position criminal justice as something that they're a part of, they they genuinely invest in people exiting the justice. And they, they genuinely invest in the efforts of the government and not for profit organisations in creating a space where people exit the justice system and have support, not just from the that, that individual's immediate family and community, but from broader society. And I think that's something we don't do in Australia. We pigeonhole criminal justice issues to the people, the professionals that work directly in that realm. We don't think of criminal justice issues as a collective um, problem, as something that we all need to invest a bit of effort, a bit of time and understanding in trying to help people transition back into the community. As a result of that, most of the policies in in, in in, the, in criminal justice in um, Norway, especially in Norway, is not punitive. They're not interested in, in giving people long sentences. They're not interested in putting people in harsh conditions in prisons. They're not interested in making these people time in carceral spaces of confinement awful. They're genuinely interested in helping a person transform, rehabilitate, and find themselves whilst incarcerated or whilst under the care of a particular criminal justice sanction. And I think that makes a massive difference into the outcomes. And we see that in sort of the sort of um, quantitative statistical data that comes out of these countries, that there's lower rates of recidivism, that there's lower rates of incarceration. But I think sometimes it's important to think beyond those statistics and to think of as a society, not just focused on criminal justice, how can we change our mindset? How can we change our perceptions of people who are disadvantaged to be able for us to see the problem as being part of our individual consciousness? Because I think we can all play a part in making the social justice sector as a whole more effective but also more humane. And when I look at how these ideas and values are conceived in the Scandinavian countries, I feel that we are, you know, in Australia, on a very different trajectory. Instead of kind of moving towards that ideal and goal, we're moving towards the opposite. And if we were to look at 
if we were to conceptualize this in a spectrum where Norway was in one end and, for example, the United States was in the other end, I feel as a community and as a society, we're heading towards the punitive attitudes of the United States. And we know through research, you know, you don't have to be a criminologist or a professional in this space to know that their criminal justice system is abysmal, that it's not working and there needs to be a real shift in mindset and a real shift in policy to change that. But I do feel that we're heading down that road. And for me, that's concerning. And I think it's initiatives like this, like Time to Rebuild, it, it, it creates that countercurrent to humanizing people in prisons, to, re, to purveying and proliferating evidence-based ideas to the community that sometimes conventional media, I, not sometimes, most of the time, conventional media fails to do. And I think that is why we're heading down that trajectory. And if we continue down this road, we'll only be like another America in, in a number of years. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. You make such a good point as well. I think, um, I think not only do we on this podcast, um, and I know eHustle over in San Quentin do the same thing, but they're trying to you know, humanise people that end up in the justice system. Um, but with that, we're doing it for the community, but we're also trying to do it for the people in the justice system as well. So I think it's something that I talk about in my programs with the young guys is uh, labelling theory. So when we label someone, say a community member, will label someone in, incarcerated as, as a criminal or a crook um, or a con, that sort of stuff, then they take on that identity um, and then they start to see themselves as that. And as one of the first things I talk about, if someone starts a program with me, it's, I don't care if you swear, I don't care about most things, but I do not want to hear you guys self-refer to yourselves as criminals, crooks, ex-cons, all that sort of stuff. Because I think once they start to play into that identity, that's who they become and that's who they see themselves as, it's a lot harder to make change from the ground level there. And, and Mark, on that as well, you know, I think you bring up a really great point and, and you bring up a really great theoretical conceptualization that I, I, I use a lot in my work. And I think when we think about Becker's labeling theory, it's so relevant in the youth justice context, especially that if, if we are to model these types of perspectives, if we are to create these type of identities and individual young people subscribe to them as a result of being called a particular name, as a result of being created into or forged into a particular identity, I think that's really concerning because then people in the youth justice space aren't able to see themselves outside those labels. And we know through research, labeling theory is something that's been researched on many times in academia. And we know through research that young people take on these identities and it becomes difficult for them to detach themselves away once they believe that they are genuinely, truly these identities. And I think that's a problem. And yeah. you also brought up um, eHustle. And, you know, in, in Norway, I, I had the wonderful privilege of meeting Nigel and Erlon, and I met them again in San Francisco a few weeks ago. Yeah. But one of the conversations we had was... How can we magnify people's experiences in prison whilst staying true to the harsh realities that they experience? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we 
we, we, we pick one part of their you know, incarceration period and we magnify and focus on that. But that's sometimes at the cost of losing the context of what happens around them. And, and I think that's a way that the media, conventional media, has often kind of proliferated this idea where you characterise people as this one particular lane, but you don't describe the context that, as to why that person is on this particular lane. And as a result, it creates this image, a single-sided, biased image of an individual. And usually that, that, that's painted as a malevolent, you know, sexual predator, and we're all kind of... Um, we're all equally um, victimized by by these individuals, but I think one of the things that alternative media outlets such as this and such as eHustle can do is provide that context, mm. and I think that creates a much richer uh, understanding of how how complex criminal justice interaction is. Yeah, and on that note, you know, I'd love to kind of I'd love for you to meet them and have them on this program because I think those two synergies would just work really well. <laughs> yeah, well, um, that would be amazing. Um, I was meant to go. Well, there was a chance I was going to be going overseas, as you know, Dwayne. We've spoken about this. I was meant to be going overseas in July, gone, and I'd reached out to them, and yeah, they were they were hoping to. I, I was hoping to catch up when I if I was going there, but that's been deferred till till next July. But you know, Mark is a. Uh, you know, I, before we even started this, I remember seeing Mark rocking around with an ear hustle T-shirt, and uh, and you know, I've listened to a lot of love for the episodes and love their work. So mm-hmm. we'd love to be, we'd love, um, you know, love to talk to them and, and love to share the work we're doing with you know, time to rebuild and also you know what they do as well. And I think any of our listeners that you know hasn't listened to some of their episodes, I won't even go into it because um, there's such an amazingly brilliant twist if you start listening for not a twist, but it's such an amazingly heartfelt story from when you listen to the first episode to probably seasons two three and four and you see how it evolves especially with Ireland and stuff like that as well like yeah I just think it's a, a great podcast and something that you know where uh, we uh, we would love to be able to be connected at, at some stage to them or even just have a have a bit of a chat about the work we're doing here and the work they're doing and share and learn you know um from that um it's really interesting about your point you know you talk about labels you talk about you know people giving people labels as well and you talk about media and, and what people don't know and that was probably one of the reasons some of the stuff that you know we used to speak about and i remember speaking to i've mentioned it on this before i think i would have mentioned it before and um, one of the episodes as well um when we were working with young people and and their you know criminal convictions or their charges and so forth and then you were working we were placing people into employment and we were working with employers as well like some of the stuff that i used to do a lot of was talking to them about what's on a charge sheet or what's in a, a charge or what they've been sentenced for and then the actual what happened. Now, it wasn't to actually say, you know, to, to, to make light of what they've done, but it was, all, it, was to, it was to actually say, well, hang on, just stop and think about this for a second. What you read on a paper, what you hear in the media about a certain crime, and then if I told you what actually happened in that, you would probably think about it a little bit differently about this individual. But if I didn't tell you, you would label that individual or you would put him in that bracket as A, B, or C, um, which I always found really interesting. So, for instance, like um, armed robbery was one of the things I was, you know, I, I worked with a young person. And I explained the story about what happened. Um, and most people are saying to, you know, who, who haven't got the insights that we have or haven't had the, the experience of working in the justice system and knowing this. And that's okay. That's also perfectly okay. 
if you said to them what's armed robbery, some people old school think that's like jump, like kicking into a Seven Eleven with a sawn off shotgun. Do you know what I mean? Or <laughs> you know what I mean? Ever, but it, like when I was telling them some um, examples of what it was, and again, by no means saying that what they did was right, it wasn't. But it's not as extreme as what you see or what you believe or what you may form a judgment on. And I think that's your point about media is is really important around that because yeah, it's really. It goes in every label of life. It's very quick with labels to put something on someone. It's very hard to shake it, you know? So I think walk around that is is really important. And I'm not sure what the answer is that, but I think what we do is a bit of the answer to it. What you're doing, Dwayne, is the answer to it. What Ear Hustle does is 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 an answer to it. Or not an answer, it's probably just a, um, a factor in mitigating this, you know, a little bit more. You never eliminate it, but you can mitigate it. Yeah, I agree. And and it was it's funny you mentioned that as well, because there was a study some years ago in Canada, which and there were participants of this research project that was um, done over there, where they were given all the media clippings and articles, and they were asked to be like the jury. And they were given all the media articles and all the information that was purveyed and proliferated by the media. And they were asked as to whether or not this individual was guilty or not. Based on that information, 90% of them had said that that person is guilty. The second part of the research project then brought in the actual court materials that were presented in court that the judge had um, at his or her um, perusal. And of that 90% of people who said that that person was guilty after having this sort of the whole picture painted, um, 100% of that 90% said that person was now not guilty. And it goes to show that sometimes, you know, the knowledge pervaded by the media is only one set of truths. It's not the whole picture. And it's important for us as individuals to have a curious mind in navigating knowledge and what that means to us and how that relates to us and, and how we consume that. Because if we don't have a curious mind, we look at one source of knowledge and we believe that to be the truth. But sometimes it requires us to go above and beyond, to look at various sources of knowledge and for us to make a, an educated decision as to what that, what, what that truth looks like. And I think you know, that, that's a very sort of philosophical um, analogy there, right? But I, I think that if we all equipped ourselves with a level of curiosity that tells that, that, that we then go, everything I hear is not gospel. I then have an obligation to look deeper into what I hear to adjudicate as to whether or not I believe it or not. And I think if we all have that mindset, wouldn't, wouldn't this be a better world? <laughs> yeah, certainly would, certainly would. Um, that, what you said there is like, yeah, is, is like what we all, you know, what everyone would love to happen, what everyone feels should happen as well. Yeah, but the reality of it is it's, it's a difficult shift as well. But, you know, but I think you're right in what you say. Um, from all your kind of... Um, conversations you know your travels you know talking to people in ear hustle talking in you know in um in norway and um, you know with prison radio and, and all that and a conference and so forth what did you did you get a sense or did you is there something that you see on the horizon that's a, 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 the next shift in how we tackle this because obviously podcasts can do it and 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 so forth was there anything else that you you know, that was exciting you or that was something that you felt could be something that we would see in the future coming in or it could be an extension of what we're already doing? There is, in, in all my travels, whether it was in the, in the United States or Sweden or Belgium or the UK or Norway, 
there were concerted efforts in various social justice efforts to believe in the power of lived experience as a form or as a repository of knowledge. And I think we have historically seen people who have been touched by the justice system or have experienced disadvantage one way or another as being you know, just subjects of, of research. We, we learn from them, we ask about experiences, and then academics in a different sort of siloed realm write about it. But what we're seeing is that these people, including me, who have had lived experience are now leading that way, actually writing for themselves, talking for themselves, amplifying their own voices in various platforms like we're doing here today. And, and, and that is being so, that is being utilised as a credible source of knowledge by various agencies around the world, by various academic scholarships around the world, most notably in mental health as a result of that Royal Commission here in Victoria that occurred. But what we're seeing is a shift in having a true belief and having a true commitment to embedding and amplifying lived experience perspectives of disadvantage of the criminal justice system in policy initiatives, in the work that they do on a daily basis. So much so that I've just recently started a role as a lived experience coordinator um, at an organisation called Jesuit Social Services. And my role, quite sort of in a very simple way, is to amplify and embed lived experience in within the organisation to, to so that all the programs, all their policies, all their initiatives have better outcomes. And we are seeing today, not just in my work at Jesuits, but also in my work at RMIT, that there is more appetite for consuming lived experience expertise and lived experience perspectives in the social justice sector as a whole. And I think we're going to continually see this wave of professionalization of lived experience in social justice as we move forward. And we see that already in, in other initiatives like Confit, for example, where Joe is using his lived experience to inform his work, to inform his practice. And as we move past, I think the next shift will be translating these sort of empirical, experiential um, accounts of lived experience into a particular academic field, um, you know, to be included in curriculums at universities, to be included in curriculums for training for professionals in the criminal justice and social justice sector. And that's certainly the work that I'm doing, is how do I create this into a study so that people study it at university so that when they do leave university or they do leave their training, they are, they become equipped in recognizing that lived experience expertise is a, a reliable source of knowledge, but also they recognize ways or methodologies in which they can extract or use lived experience expertise um, in their work and inform their work in practice. And I think that's sort of the next iteration of this movement that we're all a part of. No, that's great. It's it's. I think the lived experience uh, uh, like theme is what we're going with with uh, with this season as well with everyone that's come on, um, and I think it's just so powerful. Like bringing on, getting a mixture of you know that lived ex- like people with lived experience mixed with passionate people that may not have it but have just joined the industry, um, and together because I think uh, I think a common a common theme that I get when talking to young people in prison and everything is. You know, you might get a bit of bit of a challenge from someone saying, "Well, you don't know what I'm going through." You know, you, how would you know how I feel and all that sort of stuff? Um, and then when you get 
when you get talking and all this sort of stuff. And like a lot of the time, they'll they'll speak about you know social workers or youth workers or someone in the past that have gone through as a lived experience person, and um, and they've really got a lot out of it. I think it's uh, and it's something that yeah I think we're at the the genesis, if you will, in 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 Australia of of really amplifying that lived experience. I, I completely agree, and 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 I think, but I also want to kind of highlight kind of one one particular study that was written um, quite recently. But there is often this journey from lived experience, you know, me experiencing the justice system and being part of it and what have you, to then being able to move past that and become a lived experience expert yep. within the purview of my own experience. And I think that journey requires a sense of empowerment from not within my, not just within myself, but from the community and the society in which I belong. And if I was to be able to give sort of one thing that we could all do, you know, as, as listeners of this podcast, as, as, as you as host of this podcast, is to ask ourselves, how do we empower people with lived experience? Or a better question would be, what can I do? What, what, what's a small bit I can do in my everyday life that empowers people with lived experience to be able to see their experience of the justice system and all of disadvantage, whatever it may be, in a meaningful light where I'm not othering them, where I'm not subjugating or subordinating them. And that is a small part we can all play in this in this movement, in this journey. Yeah. I want to um to bring it back to your first um interview you did with us and and a comment that you said, a line that you said in in that and obviously this was I your, think I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. So and and it, it stuck at me and since we've had conversations since Dwayne and I've mentioned this to you as well, that it really kind of always stuck with me this line in it and and you, you know you, you were talking about your work we we're talking about what happens and when you release and, and when people release and and you were talking about how it could be better for people um from the lgbtqia community for when they are released so you were reflecting on if you look at um people from you know indigenous and backgrounds and you thought you were talking about you know maybe it could be other cohorts and other people and other backgrounds and cultural and so forth how there is um you know specialized and there's designated organizations who are rightly so who are supporting and you know helping them for you know post-release but for the lgbtqia community it is you know something that's not so visible or not there um and i know you spoke about like how that could probably need that needs to change and um, where's your thoughts on that at the moment and is there anything that's come like since since that you know that initial comment and what you've experienced since you've been released sure i think there is still a dearth of initiatives which targets people lgbtqia plus people in the community being released from prisons or the carceral space but there is an organization that has just recently started called rainbow pathways and I think they're doing some amazing work in generating that momentum and creating that movement and creating that sense of awareness in the community that you know, people that are being released that do identify require that little bit more of support because they're, they experience multi-layered um, disadvantage. And unfortunately, you know, from when I spoke to you last to when I, I'm speaking to you now, and, and from my knowledge and from the research I've been doing, Certainly in the academic space, there's been very little advancements substantively in 
in that space. And I, and I still think there is so much room and, th- and that's certainly something that I focus on. And now in my role at JSS, that, that, that will be a focus area that I'll be looking at and, you know, how do we improve um, the lives of people exiting um, the carceral space who do identify, but there is so much room and I can't do it on my own. And I would encourage the people who, out there who have an interest in this to look at ways in which they can assist and they can help. I, I can't conceptualize what that would look like because I think that's a very individual approach, but unfortunately there is still a lot, a lot of work to be done. And I congratulate um, Rainbow Pathways um, and the team that work in that organization for starting for starting this initiative and i hope that grows and continues but from my space i'm certainly looking at sort of the research initiatives that i can bring to the table that could enrich practice when that does get fully established and something substantive does get fully established um and there are plenty of people in the research space i have, I have a number of colleagues at rmit that are working in this um but it is still a problem and I, I wish I could come back here and say, you know, all these amazing things have happened since then. But unfortunately, they're few and far between. And that's a problem. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to kind of, uh, another point that I wanted to add was going back to my first interview, I mentioned that sometimes the community can learn something from what happens in prison mm-hmm. or something along those lines. And, I, and I've really reflected on that. And one of those things that, I feel is not as palpable or felt in the, the, the outside community is this sense of camaraderie and, and, the, and forging this sense of community belonging and camaraderie that occurs in prison. I'm not saying that everybody who goes through the carceral system experiences this, not at all, but it is a common experience for people who go through the carceral system. And what I wish that we could learn from and take away from people's experiences in prison is look in a, in a really critical way. You know, how do people forge these bonds and relationships and ultimately create this sense of camaraderie that's so strong? And how can we recreate that in community? And through that process, I hope people will become be, begin to understand that incarceration isn't people in prison aren't all horrible individuals that there is still beyond the news headlines beyond the conversations we have there is still that level of humanity within them and i think that's a really great process of way of understanding that yeah yeah well said and that was yeah i think that was our aha moment in our last uh, episode yeah me, you, Mark, <laughs> we all kind of sat there going i think we're learning yeah there's more to be learned from how we're working inside and and and, and then we're you know acceptance and, and and conversations that are having then on the outside and i think that's you know something that you know will hopefully continue but i think going back to the other part as well like i think if we have a platform and if we and i think everything if it keeps being brought up and talked about and people have a platform to speak from it um, and conversations keep happening um, then that's that, that to me is generally how you know things can get moving it might take longer than you know people want or or the need is for but you know if you keep bringing it up you keep talking you keep giving people a platform to speak about that um and looking at like you know something like rainbow pathways i'm sure they are now 
advocating in that space um, and hopefully getting the, the 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 chance to do that and the platform to advocate in that space for the, for the need of the work they're doing um, and the need for more of it to be done, you know, not just them. As you say, these things can't exist on their own by one organization or one person. Um, they need a community around it literally to, to, to help. So, um, what's uh what's next we'll 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 you know we're taking a lot of your time mate we love speaking to you so uh um but what's next for you then what's the kind of next couple of months look like the next year or so more travels um are you staying kind of you know feet on the ground in australia for a while and 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 you know i wish are you wish (laughs) (laughs) oh i wish look um this year has been a really busy year but you know i say this in in a in a really fortunate way but i have another even busier next year. Um, I'm going back to the United States to do some research projects with Inside Wire, which is a prison radio program with humans of San Quentin. I have, I'm going back to the second international prison radio conference where I wish and hope that you and uh, Mick and Mark can join us in London. They'll be in London next year yep. and attending other conferences in Europe um, and Asia as well. So it's, it's a really busy year. I think by the end of this year, I, as, as someone, as an, still an undergraduate student, I have uh, eight publications, uh, which is a lot on top of all the work I do. Um, I think next year is even going to be a bigger year for myself and my colleagues at RMIT and Jesuit Social Services. Um, but look, I'm, 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 I'm very happy and I'm very privileged to be able to use my experience in the way that I do, in the work that I do. And so although I sometimes complain that I'm exhausted and I'm tired, it's an absolute privilege to amplify the voices of not just my voice, but for the men and women currently in custodial settings all over the world, that I can be, in some ways, their representative, although I by no means represent their experiences, but I can represent them in the world stage, in academic circles, in media outlets like this one. Um, and I and hope I hope through that process I'm creating more pathways for people who have had a similar experience as me in the justice system to be able to do the work that I am able to do now, and that is the ultimate goal: is to create and forge those pathways and create sustainability around lived experience and lived experience, lived experience criminology. Yeah, great, um, and you know you're doing a great work, mate. And it's and I think just you know the reason why we wanted to bring you back on is obviously to. You know, we know what you've been doing, but I think it's really good for our listeners and, and everyone else to, to to hear of the amazing positive work that you're doing and you continue to do. But where it all started as well, um, and it started in behind the walls, you know, um, and you've torn, as I said before, you know, um, something that's really, you know, a very negative thing in someone's life, you know, and could have really consumed you, but you used it as you know, I suppose a time to reflect and also then to, to fuel the fire of how, you know, you can support other people, but you can, you know, be that voice um, and, and you know, an, an advocate um, for, as you say, men and women around the world and, and in Australia especially uh, about how we can make things better and provide, I suppose provide a better, you know, a better environment for them on the outside when they release as well. So continue the great work, mate. Love speaking to you. Always a, always a pleasure. And, and we speak, you know, a little bit more, you know, it's not just for our listeners. We don't just speak in every time we come onto the podcast. We're uh, we've had a, f- a fair few meetings, and uh, we always I always love hearing what you've been up to, but I always love the conversations that you know we all have together about that because I think we're all coming from you know the same same spaces and the same kind of vision and mission in what we're trying to achieve. You know, so uh, I am I look forward to that continuing 
well into the you know next year and the years to come um Dwayne now I asked you this question before when you came on to the podcast I asked everyone the question about what they want to be when they grew up and you've answered that so I'm going to ask you what do you want to be in the next five ten years and um, where do you see yourself and what would that be like you know, Mick, you asked a, a very difficult question and I can answer all your other questions, but this is a very difficult <laughs> yeah, one for me. Yeah, Because I think it changes over time. But look, I'd, I'd really love to kind of root myself in um, my academic interests. What that would look like, I have no idea. I might go teach. I might work in the research field. But I, I think whatever I'd become in the next five, ten years, it, it would it would definitely be deeply rooted in academia. Yeah. And... I can probably in America probably say I probably see that happening. Uh, somehow, yeah. do I? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank I don't, you. Think, I don't think it's going to be too far fetched for you there. Uh, I would have yeah. laughed if it was something something completely. You should have just done it. In. You should have <laughs> thrown us in something complete curveball. We would have finished on it. Yeah. I'm going to open up a cafe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mate, thanks for your time. Um, as always, you know, we, uh, you know, love the relationship that we've built um, and we know it's, it goes beyond the podcast and so forth. So love, uh, look forward to, you know, continuing to, to work with you, have the many conversations with you and then just watch, you know, the great work that you're going to be doing, um, you know, in, in this space for, for many, many years to come. So, um, yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.